Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello everyone, I'm Sam Fry and welcome to a new episode of Technique. This is the podcast where we talk to artists about their use of technology. Now I'm interviewing artists today, but before we start, there's one thing you need to hear. So today's artist is someone I've known for a little while. They are an artist in their own right, but also work as a digital person in the arts in general. I'll let them introduce themselves. My name's Martin Franklin. I'm currently Digital Projects Manager at London Philharmonic Orchestra. I've been various other other things, um, usually with digital in the, in the job title, digital artist, digital producer, digital communications manager. That was Martin introducing himself. Now, as he says, he's worked in various different digital roles in the cultural industries, currently working at the London Philharmonic Orchestra, of course. But he actually started life as an artist too. And today we're going to talk a bit about broadcasting in the arts, which he's done lots of really interesting work. Then we'll go on to talk a little bit about curating digital archives, in particular talking about a recent project that Martin's done with the Google Cultural Institute. And the other thing that we'll touch on, which was a little bit ad hoc, is about the idea of introducing yourself, not just on a podcast like today, but actually just in general life when you've got quite a varied role. As with some of the other episodes, we're going to start, though, with a little bit of music and then we'll go straight into the interview. I'd been away travelling and I lived in Windsor at that time and, and there was a, a venue that had been running since the 70s called Windsor Community Arts Centre. The community arts centres were a thing in the 70s. There were many of them that were basically vo- volunteer-run venues with very minimal you know, levels of paid, paid staff, so they're programmed and everything by just people who, who volunteered. And... and um, I'd always kind of thought, oh, I'd like to get involved in that. That sounds good, you know. And then, anyhow, you know, returned from my tra- travel and, and and walked in there and said, right, well, you know, I'd like, what can I, what can I do? What can I get involved with? And they were like, okay, do you like music? I was like, yeah, I like music. I said, okay, you can run the gigs then. So, you know, straight away, and I didn't, I did run the gigs in, in the end, but I, I assisted for a period. And, um, you know, kind of got into it that way. And suddenly I was like, basically uh, being a pr- promoter, le- you know, learning, learning about event promotion and um, stage management and all this sort of thing. And, and the, the person who, who said that to me, who, who worked in the venue, was a, a woman called Patty Cohen, who at the time 
was was a teacher, I think, but she then later went on to run the Creative Partnerships program, which was a fantastic sort of Ken Robinson inspired s- scheme that put um, artists and teachers in as collaborators in education environments to run projects with an educational sort of theme, but that, that were very much about kind of creative exploration of learning topics. And funnily enough, just another little Windsor Art Centre sort of side story. There was a fantastic artist there who programmed um, the, the exhibition. So they, later they had an actual gallery space, but early on they just put stuff up in the, on the walls of the bar and things. And um, I found out just I think earlier this year or last year that this this artist used to, used to program some pretty radical work which he you know he had to kind of advocate for and fight for the value of it and anyway he he did a a, a group show of London artists um, that that featured a, a pre pre fame um, Damien Hirst. Oh wow! So you know, suddenly, uh, yeah. But anyhow, there was a kind of, uh, you know, it was a very life-changing moment because there was a community of artists and, and you know, young young artists around around the building because it was an accessible space that we could you know we could do stuff in. And then I I met and began to work with you know some people who are, who are producing touring theatre shows. Then my own music production had a sort of outlet, and I started to write original music for for theatre. Yeah, and did all sorts of amazing stuff in in this in this space. Yeah, from sort of meditation installations and uh, to yeah, kind of rave era type of type of stuff. Amazing. So from yeah, from 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 there, I managed to get that balance that I think a lot of artists are seeking, where there's a kind of bit of part time stability, where you're in a in a sort of creative environment, but you're you're applying some kind of practical practical skills, and then that gives you a, a base from which to sort of do your creative work. I don't know. It, I sort of drifted into it. it, it it's something that I'm am slightly critical of as people rise up the the management chain. Is is that we're in an industry that that where there there are very little opportunities for promotion. You know, nobody ever in my career has come up to me saying you're doing a great job. How would you like to be manager of this department? Have a big pay rise as well. So what tends to happen is people people leave um, teams, and if they're seeking more money and um, more responsibility, they have to get get another job. And the result is quite often you have people who don't actually want to be managers, have no kind of aptitude for being managers. But the only way they can get get a better salary and um, establish themselves is, is to take on that responsibility yeah, it's not good, or right? to go freelance which some people do as well and <laughs> uh, indeed or become a consultant or yeah. become a consultant yeah yeah but I don't know if we're in the, uh, in, the in the era where consultancy is quite as sort of easy as it as it was at one point but but yeah, so then I, I, I think I, I think what I what I found from doing that is that my I was sort of in a territory where where my own artistic interests could be sort of manifested in, you know, in a, in a real space, so I could program artists whose work I was interested in. But then I'd have to take the responsibility of finding an audience for them, which was not always easy. But um, you could do all sorts of things like that, bring kind of interesting work and new talent into your into the community space. So yeah, so that that was my kind of you know introduction to the the arts industry as a as a day job. 
yeah, you know, subsequently went off and did other stuff in in my kind of artist career, but but also then kept up this this approach, I suppose, of applying creative skills in a practical context in a workplace. And your your artistic practice at that point was it about music in theatre primarily, or was it actually? No. about music in, in general and audio <coughs> soundscaping <clears throat> yeah if you like I, that's the, the, that, I've always sort of bristled slightly at the word soundscaping because I, it somehow m- makes the music seem kind of less or like the, you know, the composition you do it just ha- happens to be there like a landscape you know and you just have to like record it but, but, but yeah it was very much about sort of Im- imaginary spaces I suppose so it, yeah it did lend itself to that feeling of environments and so on and, and the theatre stuff was just a way a, a way to kind of apply that to something that was a more kind of rounded performance form it, w- it was very very stimulating Was there anything in particular that you were trying to explore through that or, or were you just essentially experimenting and seeing where where things took you. Yeah, well, it's, I, I think what what's interesting about that kind of s- sound tracking or sc- scoring approach is that you you're you're very very much led by having to amplify a particular quality in a scene which is already prescribed. So you have free reign to some degree in how, how you're going to do that, but you're led by the narrative and you're led by the drama that's that's happening and you have to if you if you're trying to do your job well you ha- you have to fo- you know you have to follow that you can't pull against against that um so it's it's a sort of in- interesting skill that i think you know then gets applied in other kinds of authoring where you're operating within a wider context so it's not solely do you, you know do whatever you feel like doing you you, you have a you have a a, a brief and a a direction you have to follow, which is something that you have to learn in any kind of authoring. I mean, you know, currently I I do all manner of things, but one of them is is content production for the for the orchestra to help you know promote seasons and pr- promote promote the organisation and so on. And there's there's a lot of contrasting input there where people want things done in a in a particular way that suits the brand or is driven by other things which may not necessarily be purely what you what you know what I would choose to do so I guess it's about learning to sort of happily compromise and you know realize that it's it's a group it's a it's a group endeavor and you're providing a kind of substance to the content but that will then be shaped by other people's opinions sometimes those briefs though they they can help spark creativity too because you might go down an avenue that you wouldn't have explored otherwise and find yeah find areas that are, are really interesting that actually make you feel more creative and and help you spawn other ideas yeah quite right i think sometimes it, it does sort of jar a little bit sometimes when you've got someone who doesn't really know exactly what what you do but but nevertheless wants to air their opinion about it um and you and you you know because they're paying you you, you have to kind of uh, be flexible to that, but uh, you know, taking a step aside from it, I think you're right. It, it can lead you into areas that you w- where you wouldn't have gone if you were just left to your own devices, and that's good. Yeah, so. 
can perhaps only be appreciated one step away. <laughs> yeah, do you, do you get a chance to do any of that anymore, or not really? Uh, well, uh, currently for a practical goal, although it, it, it's interesting because I've always thought um, s- some artists would take a very black and white view of if you're not making, you're not developing your practice, you're, you're not, you know, you're not doing your art, whatever that, that, that might be. But, but I've always thought, actually, there's a long history of artists as catalysts and hosts of events and connectors of people. Um, and I think that's a pretty interesting and valid place to be that you you know you if you like you could call it curating or you know something which seems like a more contemporary phrasing of it so so some of the things that I like to do are making sort of visualizing and making partnerships between people so if I can see an area where there's a mutual benefit I'm excited to try and sort of make a new thing happen which will which will bring out that mutual benefit. And I sort of see those kinds of um, activities, you know, some, somewhere in the spectrum of, be, of being creative, but it's sort of seen through a, perhaps a, a, a filter of um, kind of a, you know, awareness of people's, people's business and other goals that are, that are, are set aside from just aesthetic decisions. Um, so that's a kind of long way around saying no, I don't get a chance to make any music <laughs> anymore. <laughs> I've got a house and a baby and yeah. that sort of thing. So, um, but I, I do, st- I do still f- feel. I think any artist would still feel there's that sort of selfish part of you that just wants to sit in a dark room and do whatever, you know, whatever kind of weird art you you want to do and not have anyone else go. Can you make it a little bit more orange? You know. And uh, it's it's just about f- kind of that life life balance space I think where you get that afternoon a week where no one's going to hassle you can just get in and do your do your thing you know um, so I, I still do have a kind of life ambition to sort of become a teenager again and go back to my bedroom <laughs> play with my synthesizers. Park uh, working oh, yeah. partly on SHP Live. The streaming programme, yeah. Um, and that, to an extent, I guess, is a lot about bringing people together um, oh, yeah, in terms of artists, theatres, um, actually yeah. bring them together with digital streaming. And to an extent, I remember when talking about this before, you would present that very much as actually had this idea or wanted to explore this area that was probably a bit of a, a side project in, in some respects to yeah. 
what yeah. uh, Southfield Park wanted to achieve generally. Um, yeah. So I guess yeah. that's probably a place where you're applying that desire to have actually to explore and to work artistically and to connect people. Yeah, it was very much about uh, b- becoming a sort of hub and, and information sharing uh, s- space f- for you know for artists or people in the culture industry who who just wanted to kind of get up to get their get their ideas kind of f- f- you know familiar with what was happening in that in that environment. Whereas that the the project you're talking about, which was commissioning new work, which was kind of hybrid digital and physical work, I, for a few few years before that, I'd always been running um, conference events th- there with that same kind of mission, I, I suppose. Um, so we I did a uh, the Sound Space Sonic Arts conference there for a, for a few years, which was when I think about it, it was like really really ambitious we, of you know, programming speakers and evening concerts and um, some of the my colleagues in, in the venue kind of got on board with the idea and so we had um, an exhibition programme that was um, kind of th- you know, themed around those topics as well. Um, there's a lot of things you can do if you've got a, a space and, and ability to programme things in it, it's a real fundamental. You know, the challenge there was that it's it was a regional, regional venue, and because of the nature of what I wanted to explore, the the audience was either based in London or very, very sort of spread out. But so reaching them and kind of bringing them, bringing them to me was always the, always the challenge. Um, but yeah, I did things like um, yeah, as well as that, I I got into the circuit bending. Um, Scene where p- people are are manipulating um, electronic toys and and m- making these customized kind of sound devices uh, out of them. So I I found that um, the circuit bender who had the biggest following on YouTube kind of hunted hunted um, hunted them down and br- brought them to lead a, a weekend workshop in 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 the space, which we then kind of made videos of, of, about and yeah, it's brilliant. All that sort of stuff, but hard, hard to, hard to explain it to, <laughs> you know, people who've never come across anything experimental before. Sometimes, and also at that time, hard to, hard to explain why this is, why this is a sort of valid activity that goes beyond, kind of messing around with plastic telephones in in the workshop space because really it was about you know human intervention in technology and creating new interfaces and that you know people people could find to to use in different ways and then as you say that so we had that sort of main strand of which spanned everything from you know photoshop evening classes to um bringing artists down to explore use of use of motion sensors and circuit bending and um, all that sort of thing and so when this, this idea came came about of, of saying actually why why don't we try to turn um, cultural organizations into broadcasters and because I was already doing a podcast at that at that stage, the Gene Pool podcast, which 
started off as a recording of an artist meeting where we'd get very interesting speakers and I just thought I can I can make more out of this you know let's let's record the talks and um, suddenly um, you know was getting 10,000 listeners for this this podcast which you know was covering some pretty obscured territory so I already had this idea of, of thinking oh now I can apply that idea to um, the artists we're getting in for, for residencies and to, to run these kind of weekends let's, let's have a little chat to them while we're there and we'll record some of the activity and the responses to it and some you know and reach far more people than were actually in the room at, at the time but it, it kind of felt like a, a really good economy and just this concept of let's broadcast what we're doing so the idea of uh, kind of visually broadcasting then you know came out of that and um, thankfully at the time Arts Council England were very receptive to to that that proposition and and gave us three years of funding to to try stuff out Was that funding with quite a broad scope of let's see how we can digitise the arts or was it specifically for yeah it didn't have it didn't have a um, a brief well you know in the funding application you have to give some illustrations of the type of thing you will do obviously it's not completely blue sky Um, but it was very much conceived as something where it, it was it was a pilot that was going to experiment with different 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 formats um and obviously, if you you know if you if if you still are in year three, if you're still doing what you thought you'd do in year zero, then you've not really learned anything that you you know you've applied to that along the way. So 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 in fact, we didn't um, think about commissioning new work right at the beginning. It was through the experience of <coughs> sort of reinventing television, reinventing bad television by pointing cameras at a. Um, theatre stage or, or sonic arts festivals like Audiograft, that it just it just seemed a kind of obvious requirement that what we really need is to encourage artists to make work which which knows it, it is live but it is also online because then all of the potentials of each space can be you know can be uh, catered for. So what, what kind of things were you doing initially and then how did that compare to what you did towards the end of that, that programme? Um, well, initially we were sort of a kind of, t- a sort of touring service, really, that, that, that allowed b- both um, events in, in the venue but, but also elsewhere in the southeast to to explore, bro- kind of broadcast and extend their, their reach but by, you know, just putting stuff out on the internet and then you know through through doing that for a while I I I hosted uh how many I think three conferences which were a little bit like a you know state of the streaming arts type of moment where we just brought in people who were doing interesting things in in that environment to come and talk to a small small audience of of people um and then we st- we kind of maintained that, but t- towards the end, it, it it was probably the last. I guess the last year or so was very much focused on c- kind of creating new work and road testing it. So we c- we commissioned three new 
new pieces of work and, and brought them to their sort of initial performance stage, which was all streamed and yeah, explored some really fruitful ideas that ho- hopefully have gone on to you know to f- f- make bigger flowers <laughs> since then. I know some of them have, but yeah, it was just like drilling into drilling into where's the art, I suppose, from from sort of saying okay, here's an interesting you know experimental musician. Let's let's just show him to more people through the through a camera lens to actually kind of re- reversing the, you know, who has control of the camera in a sense of going, actually, the artist should be the ones who are directing the camera as well. I was, um, I was looking at a, a video before I came down here today, yeah. uh, which was about the, the Lamella project. I don't know if you've got yeah. Lamella or Lamellar. Um, I think they pronounce it slightly differently to me. Lamella. Lamella, okay. Lamella, yeah. um, and on that example... They were essentially recording a fifth production, right? But actually, on the screen, if you watched a digital version, there are extra kind of yeah. pre-recorded bits of footage that were kind of there to bring yeah. out extra metaphors from from the production. Very interesting. I think that's you know that was the most sort of technically challenging and kind of advanced view of using that technology from a from a theatre perspective. Um, but it it sort of did, it kind of did so many different th- things. That 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 example, as you say, it it let us explore how can we make this experience native to the two the two different platforms. So if you're in the in the theatre space, you saw a real theatre show with actors who were basically t- you know, t- talking to each other um, v- via video conferencing. But that was part of the, that was part of the narrative that they were separated by this geography, uh, and and so one actor was projected because because um, she was in Philadelphia, while we were in Bracknell. <laughs> um, so, uh, but you know, and then that sort of it seemed to reveal all this really interesting vocabulary and, and physicality of how do people relate on webcams, and there's a you know there's a particular way people are when they're talking to each other um, and a particular sort of framing that you, you, you get so then when people people were viewing the, the live show online yeah, we, we mixed in all of this additional content and explored kind of sp- how to use split, split screens and uh, yeah, c- use the digital platform for its ability to deliver more simultaneous information so it, it was kind of addressing the much repeated um, response from traditional producers that oh this live streaming it's it's not like it's not like really being there you know but, you know therefore assuming it's a it's a secondary or second rate experience and so you know I just got so sick of saying yes, it's not like being there. It's like being somewhere else and seeing it <laughs> via the internet. But if we, if we stop thinking that um, we can only present our art form in, in one way uh, and, and just be a little bit more flexible about it, we can, you know, we can produce some really compelling experiences in, you know, in, in other platforms. Um, yeah, good, good stuff. Very hard to... It, yeah, very hard to deliver it because you've got all the kind of time time delay issues when 
when, you know when it's been when there's sort of international distances to to cater for and uh, you know and you've got one one technical producer who who's both delivering some um, pre-prepared video and a live Skype feed into the theatre space and running sound cues um, and is also mixing a, a kind of multi, multi-camera multi uh, split-screen view that's being delivered to the online audience. But yeah, I mean, you know, we, at that time we were really fascinated by the whole transmedia c- concept which um, you need loads of resources for but that was the ambition of that piece that the the characters and the organizations that 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 were in the in the narrative would really be accessible and would really have their own websites and videos that you could explore if you wanted that extra extra content summertime just comes around once a year boy summertime just comes around once a What was it like um, with that that piece and I guess some of the other pieces as well, where you've got essentially a live performance and then a digital version of that live performance that exists afterwards? So you've got you've almost got two different things there that are being produced at the same point. Yeah. How, what are your feelings about that and essentially the, the ability to kind of share socially what's happening at that moment and then what, what had been produced afterwards and sharing yeah. that via yeah, yeah. various mediums later yeah. as well. Yeah, suddenly the, time, the timeline that you're looking at just it extends, you know, you're you got your long tail experience that that stems out from the from the you know the initial initial performance um and that that's always the case with with streaming that everything that we did always got the biggest views the week after um and you know people pe- obviously statistics are always very um you know, very interesting f- for people, and you you know you hear all kinds of figures banded about. I've you know I've heard p- people qu- quoting fairly implausible numbers of views for um for for live streams, but y- you can never really have a definitive answer because it'll be it'll be viewed for as long as you care to keep it live for. But the question is, do you consider that to be a valid experience of your Work, you know, if if how how far away from the live event does it have to be before it's it's a it's a record? And do you have to like, consider that in yeah, advance? Yeah. So do you have to think about okay, how are we how is this going to feel live? How is this going to feel if you're watching it digitally yeah. live? Yeah. And how is this going to feel afterwards if you watch that? Yeah, that version. Uh, yeah, there's, certainly there's a whole uh, other spheres to think about of d- different kinds of experience and different entry points to, to it. So, uh, yeah, I, 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 now we talk about it, I think it's very worth, um, very worth exploring 
more because this is nobody knows about this stuff. It's you know you, you've got the the kind of major players who who've defined um, a, a you know a particular area of of the event cinema um, type of approach, which is is a kind of easy sell for performing arts venues because it's it's really like going to the theatre and it's it's understood. Oh, you buy a ticket, you go to the cinema, you watch the live thing. Only you suddenly now have all this. This global, uh, this global s- spread, um, but in terms of, you know, but the but the work is, it's just broadcast really really well. I say just, you know, it, it is broadcast really and produced really well, but the artistic content, it doesn't change, and th- and that's what I I thought really needed to be l- looked at, you know, no matter what your budget is for for delivering it that the actual artistic thought of what is what is this and what is it trying to do um, needs to be needs to be played with and we did we did something uh, with the London Philharmonic where we which was a really interesting um, kind of uh, you know mashup of, of different interests in that the, there's a, a software company um, Square Enix who produced the Final Fantasy game and they were, they were launching the new um, new version of of the game, and the comp- the composer who'd written the soundtrack for the for the game was a real LPO fan, and so she wanted to um, produce an event where her her music from the game was played by the orchestra live, um, and so we record a lot at, at Abbey Road, and so we 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 got Abbey Road as the as the the space, the orchestra played the live the soundtrack to this game, which the which the Final Fantasy um, guys then live streamed as a kind of launch event for the new uh, the new version of the game. It did well for views at that time, but you know just <laughs> throw throw some numbers in. I just checked it the the other week, and um, it's had one and a half million views since the live event. The live event had like six hundred thousand live viewers. So, if if you think about that, so you know, and so the kind of there's a number of questions that traditional producers will ask. There, they go, well, it's, it's not it's not like being in the in the concert hall. Is is that valid? It won't sound as good because it's being relayed through computer speakers, um, and it's not it's not standard repertoire for an orchestra, and nobody paid. <laughs> so there's a lot of challenges there. However, if you think about how many um, how many theatres how many sold out theatres is is it, would it you know take to to come up to those numbers? Suddenly, the the reach that this one event has had is enormous. That's a, that's an entire sold out. I don't I, I couldn't calculate it actually. It's more than an entire sold out season at the Royal Festival Hall. So. Do we think that has any value if no one pays? And <laughs> and it's also introducing music to a, a pretty different audience of yeah. possibly teenagers, possibly um, people older who have played Final Fantasy when they were younger and are still yeah. engaged in that yeah. that whole world and yeah. the franchise of Final Fantasy. Do you know the game? Yeah, Do I used you? to play it. I played 
Final Fantasy seven. Yeah, this was like five, this was like fourteen. Yeah, the, the, I haven't played the last few, but I've played the a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. amazing. Um, yeah, and no, funny enough, that that's that's another one of my kind of real kind of dr- drivers is is that access to experience of of cultural output because there's so many uh, things in life which will prevent people from accessing a live a live experience and you know we we believe this is life enhancing this this experience this will lead to so many different things this will lead to greater self knowledge this will lead to you know <laughs> you know d- different kind of qualities of experience and aesthetics so by being able to deliver a glimpse of this online it gives such a, a fantastic entry point for people who you know may not know whether they actually want to buy a ticket and, and come to a concert or not and I think that's something which you know the performing arts industry is is particularly bad at and it's particularly bad at even understanding that you know n- nobody nobody inherently knows what it is you know so how do you get the experience um if if no one's you know making any effort to show you what you're going to what you're going to get if you if you come into the concert hall or the or the theater so i'm absolutely convinced that all of these endeavors will will seed audiences in the future and they will they will seed you know the different audiences um but you have to now i think be um comfortable that it you know you 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 may seed an, an audience who at some point will buy a ticket to come and see one of your shows or they might um buy a re- buy a recording of it or they might be perfectly happy to sit at home and watch it on YouTube and we have to be okay with that that it's not the same and and the financial return is different however if that's the level of you know engagement they would like to have with the work surely we you know we have to be happy that they are experiencing what we do rather than go oh it's not the same as being in the theatre or they might. I don't know whether the London Philharmonic Orchestra has a presence there, but um, they might go and listen on Spotify or something like that, where actually there what, is a monetary generation potentially from that, and that's a very yeah. easy switch to go from YouTube to yeah, oh, we, I'll listen to a bit more of that on Spotify yeah, right now. We are smashing it on Spotify. Yeah, yeah. Spotify. If just, I mean, I've got you know from the point of view of of our sales, I can tell you, um, Spotify. You know, despite the low return per play, it's our biggest monthly income generator for for our recordings. Wow. Yeah. By a long way. Um, second to that is iTunes s- sales, and then Apple Music streaming is uh, is on the on the increase now. So. I suppose if if it was sort of combined, you know, app, Apple sales, they would they would be the biggest um, the biggest delivering retailer f- for us. But yeah, it, it's it's another thing I think where 
you, you know that that model, that streaming model, isn't it's not going to it's not going to change greatly in in how it rewards artists. Um, so you you sort of have to have a different expectation of what it what it's delivering for you. And the one other thing I wanted to ask you about um, is the work that you've been doing more recently in terms of archiving yeah, and yeah. photography, which is slightly separate <coughs> to a lot of the other things we've talked about um, here. But essentially, you've been working with Google Cultural Institute, um, looking at archives of photography, um, kind of more historically, um, and actually what more modern digital yeah. archiving looks like yeah. with the London Philharmonic Orchestra. Yeah, Can you talk a bit about that project. It's, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's become more and more interesting now. Um, now it's been it's been published on, on the Cultural Institute. Um, so, what the 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 origin of the project was that um, we have a, a filing cabinet in the corner of the office here, um, which is, which is a, a photographic archive of of sorts. Um, it's but it's hard copies. It's not it's not accessible online or. Um, even even the descriptions of who who is in the photographs is variable, um, but the, but the photographs themselves are are fantastic and that they they document a time. Well, they they, they document a whole, a whole era from the nineteen fifties um, to the the present day, but um, a lot of them were from a sort of an age that that wasn't as aware of media as as we are now so there it's social photography it's taken by a, um amateur amateur photographers and movie makers who who happen to also be classical musicians and so it it documents these kind of first tours so um the LPO was the first western orchestra to Perform in in Russia in the fifties in the kind of the, the real height of the Cold War era. They they toured and performed in um, Saint Petersburg and Moscow over there, um, and managed to 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 photograph it as well. Um, and so there's these amazing you know photographs of rehearsals and kind of backstage shots of musicians preparing and posing in front of um, in Red Square, in front of the, the big cathedral there, um, and so I started to kind of di- you know dive into this stuff and, and and pick out some of the best sets. The first the first um, tour to China in in 1973, um, the f- the first orchestral visit to um, to America in in the 70s, and. Um, yeah, so then kind of, you know, discovering all this stuff and then building a, a conversation with the Google Cultural Institute who, who who previously had really focused on 
traditional galleries and museums who are very used to the idea of archiving and you know, presenting their work and cataloguing their work in a way that performing arts organisations are com- completely not not prepared for at all. Um, so we built, we digitised some of these photographs and built um, an exhibit on the Cultural Institute, um, which is really nice kind of magazine, magazine-like uh, format that you can browse through, and I've embedded sound samples in there and um, used Google Maps, so I've got a kind of... Uh, interesting contrast where there's a photograph from 1956 of the orchestra musicians posing in Red Square and I found as close as possible the exact location to, to the metre um, on, on uh, Street View and put those things side by side so you can see them in 1956 then you can get, you know, go on the little embedded Street View and scroll around and have that same view and, and just kind of it gives you that different perception of what's changed. You know, um, there was a road there in 1956, which now is is paved over, and uh, kind of really sort of deepens your experience both of the history and um, the the architecture that's still that's still there. Um, so, yeah, that's that's really that's really uh, interesting. So the the so what's happening now as a result of, of that um, is that we, we have a, a mailing list of, of vets, LPO vets, they are kind of retired classical musicians. And um, one of the ways we've kind of alerted people to the new exhibit, you know, we sent it to them amongst other people. And, and we're starting to get some feedback from them now. And they're, they're identifying people in the photographs who we don't know who they are now and, and sort of listing oh yeah this is so and so this is so and so um, and kind of at, you know adding the, the the depth of their their knowledge back back into this archive so, so the ch- the challenge still now really for us is ha- how to manage that collection and how to sort of keep hold of this um, this new information um, but it's it's an amazing experience of kind of I suppose you know, sort of crowdsourcing in a way that, even though that wasn't particularly the intention, suddenly we've put out these these archive images, and we're getting back more information and more depth about the history of those of those times. Um, so, so that's a, that's a really interesting you know f- uh, effect of of publishing this, and the challenge is still yet how to. How to build on it and how to how to collect the additional information, <coughs> but the int- the interesting bit for me, which I, I I wrote about in the Create Hub article ab- about the digital dark age, um, I should get close to that. <laughs> the digital dark age. Um, <laughs> it, it is this um, this experience of going through the archive, and we've got fantastic. Prop, you know, photographic prints from the fifties, from the from the sixties, seventies, um, and then from the eighties, things start to change. So they ch- they change in two ways: that the um, the content of the images changes and becomes more aware of marketing. Um, so it's posed, and people are aware. I am now on camera. I'm going to, you know. 
I'm not just going to kind of do something really silly and cheesy. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to you know, pose like a true professional. And so it's that awareness of of image is coming in. So we lose the social aspect of of what was life like for touring touring musicians, you know, encountering new 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 locations. But then as we as we come closer to the present day, there's a number of format changes that make things even more complicated where we've got um, we've got slides, we've got transparencies, um, none of which you know you, you can appreciate in the same way as a print. You had you have to have them printed or or, or whatever, you know, blown up in, in, in some way. Um, so it becomes in, the archive becomes inaccessible at that point unless you have another specialised piece of technology um, to digitise slides. Or, um, and then, you know, coming into the twenty-first century, there's nothing. There's, there's nothing there in the filing cabinets because it's all on hard drives. Um, all the social photography is is on the the mobile phones that all the that everybody now uses, um, and it's shared in such a spread out way. We don't have a collection of it. It's on people's Facebook accounts and um, Instagram pages and things. So, so it's just a massive, massive challenge of management. Yeah, I mean, we do, we have a lot of photographs. We have a lot of really good quality concert photographs that that are. Um, preserved in a, in a fashion but but they're 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 not preserved in a kind of long-term way someone will decide well we're going to use these this season for promotion so I'll put them in the in this season folder and that's where they'll be um, but in five years time you, you won't know where to look to, f- to find them so suddenly there's a challenge for performing arts organizations to understand what museums do and and preserve history and preserve their own history and their own collections and this this isn't what we do so we're not staffed to do it and we don't have the uh, you know we don't necessarily have the the technology to do it at this point so there's a lot of learning and sort of investment needs to be done and I, it just makes me think um you know, if that's if that's not done, um, people people won't be looking back at 2017 and, and going, "Wow, look at these amazing photographic prints." That there'll there'll be nothing there, um, nothing that we have. <coughs> <coughs> so I can kind of see that as a you know a, a much bigger bigger problem. And um, years ago. I when I was working at that first venue that we mentioned, <coughs> sorry Sam, <coughs> I um, I ran a uh, a business net like a digital business networking event, and I had two two um, colleagues who who worked in the business sector who you know who who were part of the committee that that ran it or we all, we ran it together. Um, so it was like a monthly, monthly network and and 
talk event. So one one month we'd have um, someone coming and talking about e-commerce or the, at the time the new 4G that was being rolled out um, and what could be you know what could businesses profitably do with this new technology. Um, and so I used my kind of you know culture uh, undercover kind of culture agenda to occasionally program in people that business people would would think were interesting but had other agendas so as part of that I got um, Chris Clark from the British Library to come in and at the time um, Chris was the head of their digital archive and he introduced the idea of bit rot in his talk the terrifying idea <clears throat> that you can remove a hard drive from a computer with all of your valuable media on it, stick it on your shelf. However, that without being connected to anything, that data can decay and bits can fall off. Um, so when you do try to reload it, it just the files will be corrupted, won't be there. So they, at the British Library, they're, ta they're tackling this on a daily basis and have a whole you know industrial scale backup regime happening where data is continually being re rewritten uh, and to to preserve it um, so so what happens um, to organizations like like ours when a hard drive goes down that's got all of those bits of social photography on it or or whatever you ha or even your you know the, the highly expensive um, commissioned professional photography that, that you're using for your your marketing effort it's just gone <laughs> so yeah what a concern that these these things do happen and they will happen uh, so stuff is managed and collected in a in a kind of uncoordinated way anyway um, and then some you know technical Accidents can happen, and it becomes unrecoverable. That's that's history gone. That visual history, in this case, visual history, gone. And you know, I I, <laughs> I don't know how, how to have we ever had to deal with this before, or how, how do we respond to that idea that more and more and more we are capturing our lives and our environments but it's on a, it's on a medium which um, is not stable i mean there's already you know it, it, already challenges with playing back betamax tapes if you if you made the choice you're looking blank you know what a betamax tape is son like <laughs> <laughs> okay. let me uh, tell you <laughs> i have heard of betamax but it's a dead format. Yeah. It's a dead format. Like so I was too, I was listening to the mini discs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and where are they now? Yeah. They were the they were the supreme format in their in their day. I, I, I remember a lot of um, a lot of sound artists preferred it was like a mini disc two, which was like a data format as well, where you could you could put it in you could put your player um, into your laptop and then you could pull pull the files off of the disc, which you couldn't do in an earlier audio only mini disc that was a preferred format at one time but it's that case that, that you know what happens when the players are all broken you know all that 
content is stuck on the, on the tapes. Um, so, so what do you think the the art? So actually, anyone that has archives should be doing. Do you think there is an answer, or do you think it's just a conversation that needs to actually start being had between? Uh, yeah. people and organisations I, I, I don't know I, I mean I think you know an awareness needs needs to be be brought to bear but it's so difficult because you know as I say this is tr- traditionally not this is not what we do if you're a, if you're a you know a touring um, a venue that accepts to, you know touring theatre work or, or, or whatever you know you, that collecting <coughs> collecting history isn't what you do <coughs> so even if you had a will, who who will do it? Who has the expertise in the in the venue to do that? What, what where's the infrastructure that lets them build collections and and so on? So, so there, you know, there are a few um, initiatives. For instance, you know, the VNA has a has a theatre museum that 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 captures some work from you know places it, it chooses to build a collection from. But yeah, I, I, I don't know what the <laughs> what the answer is. But um, it, you know, just the th- the th- the thought that we're documenting so much um, so much more now. But in um, in two hundred years' time, we're going to be no better off, that, you know, that, than they were in eighteen hundred. And it'll be just as hard to find what you know. What what did we learn? What did we do? I think that's the bit that it kind of resonates with with me, particularly about organisations. Is how do you, how do you grow if if your own history is sort of slipping through your fingers um, all the time? How do you learn and and how do you take your the lessons you've learned f- forward with you? I know it's not all kind of you know documentation isn't isn't the all of it but it seems somehow uh, like a foundation on which to to build understanding <laughs> somebody needs to do something they say make it for the summer shines they say make it for the shines I'm not making it I'll make you every damn day come back to me when I um I go to I go to a meeting on one day and I then go some to another one on the same day yeah. and I've introduced myself as completely different things. Yeah. And then and then I could go I came downstairs early today and they said, What organisation are you from? And I had to think, I was like, well, what organisation am I from? I'm probably just myself in some ways. Yeah. Um, but I was like Create Hub, I said. I put you down as Create Hub. Did you? Yeah. Um, but then I, I instinctively I was like yeah, what would what should I say at this point? Um, yeah, it's a sort of interesting question. Like, 
I, I, I'm sure he, he's got it nailed now. But uh, you know, Richard Branson might have a lot to lot to say. <laughs> yeah. Say, what are you? It's like, well, I, I own an airplane. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah I used to make coke. <laughs> yeah. So now I guess he says I'm an entrepreneur. Yeah. Or taking people into space. Yeah. I when I I don't know if I told you when I when we were in Brisbane in February I saw a a talk at Digital Brisbane um, by this guy Brandon Spinks who's the who's the CTO for Elon Musk and he's been with him for a long time he's not with him now but he's like oh yeah so we set up PayPal then we sold PayPal oh, and then we did Tesla cars um, and then you know, had a bit of time out. Oh, and then Elon phoned me again. He said, I'm starting this thing called SpaceX. Can you come and, you know, build the tech infrastructure for me? Extraordinary laid-back guy who said, well, you know, I'm kind of lucky. I've got myself into a position where I don't really need to have job interviews anymore because <laughs> people just know what I do. Yeah, amazing. I wonder what he'd say he does. Actually, if he said it in like a... This is my role. He probably did. I think he, yeah, because he obviously he, there was a lot to talk about his pr- prior career. But now, oh, he does. You know, he's uh, what do they call him? Like angel investor or something like that. Now, hmm. just does stuff around Silicon Valley. I think he's, you know, yeah, he just sort of hangs out and like a lot of these people, he's just looking for the vibe. You know, that's something. I thought I might write an article about. About that, it, it, it is that when I when my um, in the in the 90s is when my music career was was happening and, and I had a, a, a trio and we you know we we were releasing CDs in the kind of ambient post rave ambient scene then which was a really interesting time because it it, were, it sort of coincided with you know the the, the energy of that rave scene kind of becoming a little bit more s- sort of structured and then people being open to kind of like weirdness and all sorts of other you know, alternative lifestyles, alternative music and um, basically because of the the you know the drug experience had opened people's minds to whatever is interesting and whatever makes you feel good and the, the people we were sort of meeting around that time we were like weird people, you know. And I was thinking, what, what, where have you come from? You people who are into kind of things that I'd never <clears throat> really heard about before, and it seemed like there was a whole type of person who they were on the edge of novelty, and that that's what, that was their thing. They were explorers of you know, new cultural movements, and. I, I have to sort of look back and think, where where is the edge now? Where, mm. where where is that edge of new experience happening? Is it in, you know, body like body modification stuff, or you know, people kind of enhancing them their selves technically? I don't know, you know, because that seems. I know it's happening, but it's. It or are they the hackers and like the yeah. extremes in in that way? Yeah, has it? Yeah, exactly. Summertime just comes round once a year, boy. Summertime just comes round once a year. And if the sun is shining, don't you be inside crying. Cause summertime just comes round once a year, boy. 
Well, that was Martin Franklin. He's actually just left the UK to move to Australia and therefore also left the London Philharmonic Orchestra. So I'm glad I got to catch up with him before he went. But if you are interested in knowing more about what Martin's up to, he is still going to write for Create Hub as well. So keep an eye out there for some of his articles. And if you're interested in particular about that Google Cultural Institute project that he worked with at the London Philharmonic Orchestra, looking at their photographic archives, then you can see an article on Create Hub already. And I definitely recommend reading that. Now, in terms of technique, we have some great news. We're coming back with another talk later this year. It's on the 24th of September, that's the Sunday, and it's at the V&A, the Victorian Albert Museum. It's actually part of the London Design Weekend, and in particular as part of the V&A's Digital Design Weekender. And I'm delighted to say that we've got three artists that are going to be giving short talks about what they do practically when using technology. So come along. Uh, you can find out more about this talk on the Technique website. That's technique.create-hub.com. You can also find the event on Eventbrite if you search for Technique. That's all for this month's episode of Technique. We will, of course, be back next month as well. And in the meantime, we haven't mentioned this for a little while, but if you're an artist and you're listening to this and you're doing something interesting with technology, then we're really keen to speak to you, but also to find out how you find this podcast. So give us some recommendations. Who should we be chatting to? What network should we be engaging with as well? And of course, we're still quite new at this. So any tips or tricks for improving this podcast? Really keen to hear them. In terms of the music for this episode, it all came courtesy of Josh Armistead. It's funny, actually, having talked a lot about Martin's own music, it probably would have been a good idea to play some of his. Um, but I felt that Josh's music seemed to complement the, the type of conversation that we were having. Anyway, that's all for this month's episode. Richard Adams will be back with a episode next month. And until then, take care. Design thinking has exploded into the workplace of the 21st century, putting humans at the heart of design. Or does it? Isn't it just the post-it note workshops? More importantly though, where did it come from? How did it become such a massive industry? And where on earth is it going? Is design thinking what is taught in design schools? And can it be used as a philosophy for the future? Find out more as we, Richard Adams and Sam Fry, explore these ideas with experts in the field on our first Technique mini-series about design thinking. Subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode.